0: Hey, Augmenters. I'm Julie. This is Jimmy. And we believe authentic connected relationships are the key to growing to your potential. We are joined today by Dr. Tina Opie, author of Shared Sisterhood, to talk about three steps we can all take to create deeper connections and create a collective action in the workplace.
1: Dr. Tina's message and thesis really spoke to me. Not only does she have great energy, but she makes it really clear that communities, when people come together, communities can really build however thoughtless actions by individuals can begin to break down what communities are bringing together. So let's be intentional and hear from Dr. Tina.
0: First of all, welcome Dr. Tina. We're so happy you're here. Thank you so Thank much you. for coming on this podcast. I have to tell the story of how I came across Dr. Tina. Last summer, I bet you'd know exactly when that was, it was August or September, I was in my kitchen chopping vegetables listening to npr like i always do i don't think it was marketplace which is my favorite show shout out kyra's doll i think it was somebody else and i believe i heard an interview with you and i heard the you know how you like you're hearing noise 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 and all of a sudden it was like the spotlight jimmy with the hoosker do quote the spotlights came the stage lit up the smoke came and i heard you say <laughs> that black women in the workplace don't trust white women mm-hmm. and i honestly put my knife down and was like wow that is so Mm -hmm. powerful and that it just caught my attention I just completely turned my focus to the conversation and I could not believe that like three weeks later I was at an event and you were the speaker and as soon as you got (laughs) up and started talking I was like wait is that the woman that I heard because I hadn't like tuned in enough to get your book or to get the details and I could not believe there you were Cap Center for Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership. Shout out Dr. Shakina Williams presenting to us. And so you really changed my perspective just with that one phrase that I heard in an wow. interview with you. And then I couldn't believe that there you were and now you're here. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. You really changed my perspective, of course, reading this book. And I'm really glad to have you here. So thank you.
2: Julie, thank you for that story. No, really, that means a lot to me because, I mean, I think all of us sort of, when we have those moments, I debate whether or not to say those things sometimes, because I know that it's not going to be palatable to everyone. Some people are, I've I've been taken to task for that. Like, you're making everything about race, and so in that way, you're actually the one who's racist. What I'm glad about is it sounds like you heard my heart. You heard the heart and my intention. It's not that I don't want to trust white women. I'm just telling you that at this point in time, as a collective, many Black women don't trust many white women. And it doesn't mean that that has to be that way. And in fact, Shared Sisterhood is this philosophy about how we can change that, how we can make it better. So I really appreciate that story. I I need you to put that in the testimonial because... (laughs) But that, that really, it blesses me. I'm a Christian person, so I use lots of, you'll hear me use some faith-based language. You heard that when I was presenting at Babson, so you're familiar with that. But that really warms my heart to hear that.
0: Yeah, thank you.
2: You're welcome. We'll make
1: sure to give you the audio clip for the testimonial. So when they when they click on you, you
2: know it'll come up if you need it. I love that, Jimmy. But it's funny. Well, we can talk about that at a whole different time. HubSpot knows the deal. This marketing book promo stuff is no joke, man. Let me tell you about it. It's a whole different skill. So do you have a book promo mentor that's helping you along the way? Do you want to be that person, Jimmy? (laughs) I don't think you want me to be that person. Well, if you know somebody, let me know. Because have I been engrafted into communities that are helping me? Absolutely. But do I always seek additional feedback, especially from networks that I'm not in already? Yes. (laughs) Yes. I am a feedback seeker. I love feedback. I love help.
0: Yes. We love to brainstorm. So you're in the right crowd. So I love that. I
2: do. I'm serious because it's, it's different. You know, I am not a shy person. You can probably tell that. But I don't necessarily like what people traditionally think of sales. And so, and I know we're in the conversation, but this is sort of weird that we're talking about this, but I don't like it when it feels as though, I don't know, I've worked for companies where I had to sell things and I would believe in the product, but it wasn't, it wasn't a deep passion. Shared sisterhood is different. I actually think this can change your life as you spoke to Julie. I think it can change people's perspectives. I think it can bring people together. And so I'm probably a little pushy about this. So I probably need some right. feedback on girl, take it down. <laughs> I don't
1: disagree. Good. I'm actually a decent salesperson, but mm-hmm. not for myself. I really haven't yeah. off talking about it. The only call it income stream that I can talk about with myself about or talk to others that I'm involved in is augmenters. Like I, okay. I can't sell consulting services for myself. You know, I could never sell a piece of real estate or I couldn't even sell like the chickpea business all that while I used to run. But when you really care about it, I feel like it comes through. (laughs) So like you, I mean, I think it's like if you actually like talking about it and you care, like that's the the thing to sell.
2: Yeah. I mean, and it, because if what ends up happening is, is I start talking and then I don't want to shut up because I I have all these stories and, you know, Julie, you mentioned I am old, you know, I'm 51. And so I've lived some life. There's been some, some trod on these tires Tread, trod I like uh, drawn, anyway. either I, like <laughs> <drawn>. I <laughs> was <laughs> thinking of Kimberly, the trodden shores that's what I was thinking about. And so it's something different. it's fresh it's a and it's it's not like it's rocket science but I think it's able to boil down sort of the convergence of the I, I talk about how I'm a convergence of my lived experience my training as an academic, and then my work as a consultant. The triangulation, the convergence of those three things helped Beth and I to really boil down Dr. Beth A. Livingston, who's my co-author and friend and sister. We could write it in a way that I hope is palatable to everyone, but then researchers also have some meatiness that they can dig into because we also, we built upon existing research. I know,
1: Dr. Tina, I'm going to love your phrases. You just said, trot on these tires,
2: which I wrote down.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And I want to come back to, you said the kind of casually, you're like, oh yeah, I've been grafted in communities where I got people who can help me around books. I've never heard the term grafted mm-hmm. into a community, though I immediately knew what you meant. Mm-hmm. And I just was doing some Googling. And it seems like sometimes that term is used actually in a religious sense about grafted in. Can you mm-hmm. give me a little bit of the background behind that and, and where that phrase came from, grafted into communities?
2: I don't know where the phrase, the people who you're talking about came from, but I am a Christian woman. And so when I think about how deep do we want to go? So in the Bible, we'll it talks it. about how everybody part, everybody, the, the body of Christ right? It has uh, particular people, different people who have different skills, different needs. But the idea of the body is that while it's provisionary, it provides for you, it's also nurturing. So when you are in a local church family, you're grafted in, meaning in an ideal situation, what happens is your needs are met and you're able to meet the needs of that local church body by being there. So when, when you're engrafted in, I literally, it's sort of when people, gardeners do it you know, when they will take a limb and another limb and then they'll put them together and you might think, huh, how's that going to work? But it grows back stronger. That's the idea. And that's what I mean, is that it requires sometimes a cutting or <laughs> a removal from your prior place to recognize that you do need help and that's humbling. And then you get engrafted or put into or sort of met and nurtured. And in that way you grow. So, I know, Jimmy. That's a lot that I just said, but that's what—that's that's why I use that particular term. I don't just say I'm put in a community. I—I <laughs> li- I mean, I'm engrafted in in that
1: way. Well, I got the cutting part of like the beginning must be hard mm-hmm. because a like, graft is not easy. But I didn't realize the grows back stronger, and that—that's mm-hmm. really a beautiful piece to it.
2: The beauty of that is that it does require humility to recognize that you do need some development, some evolution. But it also is a really glorious thing when you recognize that because of who I am, my uniqueness, when I go into this body, this this group, this community, I'm actually giving something that's nurturing to them as well. So it's a real, It's a, to me, it's a blessing.
0: I'm already like getting completely covered in goosebumps and slightly teary eyed. Because um, this, <laughs> this makes me think so much about the communities you talk about in your book. Yeah and these communities and there's so many things I took away Shared Sisterhood. You can find it on Amazon. Link in the show notes. What really struck me was with Black women in corporate settings, the expectation or the, the conversation or I guess the community is how you take care of each other and show up for mm-hmm. each other. And there's this, you know, in grafting, right? New people come in and like, what is your mm-hmm. experience and here's my experience and how do we take care of each other and and just sharing how, you know, white women have more of a like, we're all kind of in it for ourselves and we're mm-hmm. all probably going to be fine and we don't necessarily need each other. We might cut each other down. We might show up stronger. And I felt such a sense of recognition of that. Although I've never really worked in a corporate environment. I've always been more Mm on an entrepreneurial side, but also when you are in a community where you're all looking out for each other and taking care of each other and showing up for each other and like rooting each other on and growing stronger together. It's so powerful and it's so important. And I'm, I feel really grateful to be part of communities that are like that. So just Mm -hmm. hearing how important it is and how you know, I'm sure Jimmy and I can both see the impact of you being in communities beyond just the communities that you're currently in to share the impact, right? And sales is just sharing impact. You know, what you're bringing is impact. You're not selling a book. Yeah. You know, you're know, you bringing this change that people can experience. So it's so exciting to, to think of you getting into these new communities. And of course, any way we can be a part of it is really exciting.
2: Julie, I want to go back to what you were saying when you were saying you were feeling a little bit teary-eyed. And I would love your listeners to sort of put themselves into that place, to think about a time where they were in a community and they felt... They, they accomplished something and they knew that people were rooting for them. They knew that people actually cared. It wasn't about jealousy or envy or it was schadenfreude. There's a new word, actually. It's like friend of Freude. It's it's schadenfreude is when you are happy at someone else's negative outcomes. This person was suggesting a new word, which is when you're happy for their happy outcomes. And that is shared sisterhood. That feeling that you experience, that's what we want everyone to experience. And, and I think Julie, the point, you know, we're talking a lot about black women and white women. Julie, you, you look like to me, you may identify as white. I I I'd I be a
0: white girl. Yes. <laughs> and I'm Completely a black Completely factual. Woman.
2: Exactly. And so the, the research that we built, Beth and I built that section on, is from doctors Ella Bell and Stella Como, And they wrote a book called Our Separate Ways. And they did these in-depth interviews with Black and white women in a corporate space, and they found exactly what you said, which is where, as Black women, it, it's and I think it's most historically marginalized groups, when you have been a group that has historically had less access to power, and by the way, that is a critical theme that undergirds the, conversations we're, the conversation we're having. It's about power, and, and I just define power as access to and control over resources. And so- Historically marginalized groups, if you have not had as much access to power, you as a group, you know that as an individual, (laughs) it's probably going to be even tougher. So there is a benefit to working and thinking as a collective. And doctors uh, Ella Bell and Stella Como talk about this in their book about how Black women are often raised in neighborhoods because of racial residential segregation. You have different classes. So you may have a neighborhood where there are doctors and lawyers and and janitors and police officers everyone they're all black but this is the black area and so what does that tell you it tells you that you can accomplish anything you are but white people sometimes when they there's there's often a socioeconomic divide. You have where the wealthy white people live and then where the poorer white people live. And there's sometimes shame associated with not having money. And you're told you have to work harder so that you can become somebody, so that you can get something. Now, I had some of those same messages from my parents. I mean, my goodness. Education, they were like, it's not a silver bullet, but it's the closest thing to it. We expect A's, We, we expect top grades. But that's a little bit different. That's about my agency. It's not about my identity as being shameful because I've grown up in a poor part of the neighborhood or the other city. So then imagine what happens when you go into the workplace. And, and again, no group is a monolith. So if people are saying, well, that's not true for all black people, that's not my experience, I, I get it. But this is based off of empirical or or it's, it's based off of research that has been conducted. And you can just Google it in terms of the socialization. Black people tend to have a more collectivistic standpoint. And so when they get into the workplace, at least in the United States, when they get into the workplace, we have something called a head nod. I don't know if you all have heard about it. It's like, you see a Black person, you may not know each other, but you nod your head, hey, what's up, how you doing? And if they don't nod, what's wrong with them? So there's an expectation. I have not, and I noticed, I have not seen white people do that. That is important for us to talk about. I want everyone, to be able to have that verklempt feel, you know, to feel verklempt when you see someone who you know is really pulling for you, that's what we're going for. That's what we're going for. And that is a means to an end because once we all have that community, then we can link arms and actually start to redress the inequities that are swirling all around us.
1: Dr. Tina, I'm curious about this for a minute. As a, as a white male, I come from a lot of privilege. I'm from a town next to Babson from Newton, Massachusetts great public schools, I'm super lucky. It was a compare and contrast question, especially about, as you said, you know, uh, power dynamics. As a white male, n- normally the uh, demographic in power. When I go into a situation where I'm clearly the minority by quantity, which is sometimes on the basketball court, and I see another white male, there's no head nod. I'm actually mm-hmm. trying to go after that person and show <laughs> that I'm better than that person on the court more likely than than like going over and like giving a head nod, like, hey, we're in this together, not the case. Uh, so I was curious if in your research and, and study, if you found that there was actually a flip for them, though, the community in power might not have the same reactions to each other when they become the minority in a more like localized
2: situation. Well, that's a wonderful question. And I will have to write that down because I don't know the answer. And I actually have not seen, I'm going to have to think more about the research because there's research on status hierarchies and power, but it often holds who's in power constant based on the larger context, Mm. meaning in the United States, the power dominant group is white people, it's men. And some people may, I mean, challenge me on that if you disagree with me, but historically I think it's gonna be challenging based on data to refute those points.
0: Along those lines, too, I lived in China for several years and my daughters were actually the only, we were the only Caucasian family in our child, you know, in our kid's school and um, all the other families were Chinese and Korean. I was probably the only white mom, you know, and it was, there were like, of course, other <clears throat> Europeans and, and other Americans, but not many. And it, yeah, that kind of competition, I wouldn't say we were all there to support each other. And I would say certainly in the business context, you know, the expats there was camaraderie, well, but it was not like, a, hey, we're here to help each other as much. But I
2: bet you if you had to rely on each other for your own survival, you would. Yeah,
0: <laughs> It's a different it's a yeah. different
2: thing, because I think when I think about your example on the basketball court, Jimmy, I'm just thinking out loud here. You know, basketball mm-hmm. is is stereotyped as a black as, as being black people are stereotyped to be better at basketball. We know that that's not. True. I mean, I'm like, have you seen. You have to work hard. It's not just a genetic thing, but for some reason, that's the stereotyping. And I think I'm wondering if, when you and the other white person are there, are those stereotypes. Uh, salient and you're trying to prove that you're different, which means that the best way to prove that difference is to beat the other person who might be the stereotype. I'm not sure. In your case, Julie, where you're overseas and there are many white people, there are not many white people there in an Asian country. So you have a homogenous culture where you have become a numerical minority, but that is different than being historically marginalized. In both. Instances. Totally, totally. So, I think so we're it's we numerical, we're not yeah. Up you're,
0: for not, each other.
2: You're, you're not historically marginalized. And I do wonder if That's what's happening. Yeah. The stereotypes of white people in Asia may be very salient. And so you want to make sure that you're not that rude American or the rude expat. And if you see other people who are behaving in alignment with those stereotypes, It can become a threat actually to you so it's weird because you're you're sort of competing but you may also be distancing yourself from other people for fear of falling into the stereotype that others may have of you i'm not sure and i know there's probably some research out there on this but uh it's a great question
0: and i'm sure we could keep going long down this path but Mm -hmm. we would love to talk to you a bit about our favorite topic Well, we have many favorite topics, basketball, et cetera, (laughs) but mentoring. And we'd love to get your perspective on, you know, we love to talk about mentoring super broadly. We're not just about corporate mentoring or corporate programs or reverse mentoring or peer mentoring or alumni mentoring, what have you. We're really just giant fans of the concept in general. And I'd be so curious how in your, either in your research, in your ways, you know, that people can continue to make an impact, to show up for each other, to listen to each other. How do you see mentoring fitting into that?
2: Well, how do you all specifically define mentoring? Because there's different, I mean, I've listened in preparation, but I would love for you all to define Mentoring.
1: Whenever someone says they listen, I'm like, what's your favorite
2: episode? No, I'm kidding. I won't do that. Uh- <laughs> it's, the, it's this one. It's
1: this one. It's this one. It's always the one I'm on. I just want to be a pain in the ass. I, I think for us, mentoring, we don't really get into. We call It's It's very simply showing up for others so that you come to the relationship with no agenda other than to be mm-hmm. there and to be patient.
2: And so am I being augmented if my car stops and a stranger stops and helps me with the gas or the no. tires?
1: No, because so to us that would be an advisor in the moment
2: who has a specific skill set because they're not so they, they want to get I'm you. being a, they want to get me somewhere, okay, but doesn't an augmenter want to get me somewhere where I want to
1: go? The augmenter wants to show up for you when you need them and they're here Why? to show that you have value. And that mm-hmm. by listening to your story and by hearing your energy and your zest, they get something out of it. They get that fulfillment that there is a, a reason to be here because others can be can succeed and be happy,
2: and they get to see the story along the way. So, Jimmy, I'm a prof- I'm sorry, as a professor, I can't help it. I'm o- I'm automatically going into boundary conditions. Julie, were you going to say something?
0: I was going to say really, and it helps you grow to your potential. Like we're here to help. You know, show up authentically in these relationships to help others grow to their potential?
2: So given that definition, so it's no agenda, it's showing up to help someone grow into their full potential. What I would say is interesting is I have often thought that I didn't have an agenda when I did, because I hadn't done enough what we call dig work. It is, especially when you're, if you're augmenting with someone who is different than you, whether they have a different race, a race or ethnicity, a different gender. I think it's critical that you understand yourself and how you interact and navigate life based on those different identities. And so, so for an example, I mean, when Beth and I met, it was not love at first sight. And I, I think I've talked to you about this. And and when she when she came up to me, she was assuming that we were gonna have a relationship and a close relationship. And I didn't know her. And I am I'm very friendly. But I was suspect. You're and, also from and Boston. So, you're friendly, yeah.
0: but you're from Boston. <laughs>
2: well, <laughs> it's like, I am, I live in Boston. I'm from the
0: South. Okay, okay. I,
2: okay, I, I live, but I have, this is the place I've lived longest. Well, And I didn't want to be that way, but I immediately became closed because I didn't know what she wanted. And I have shared in many places that unfortunately for me in the workplace, most of the interactions that I've, when I've been betrayed, or harmed, it has been at the hands of white women. And because of that, I had this reaction when she approached me. And that, that circles back to your earlier point, Julia, about why I think a lot of Black women don't trust white women is because that is the case. I, from the research that we've conducted, from the research that others have done, from the interviews we've done. And so I had to then ask myself, am I gonna move forward in this relationship with Beth? Am I gonna keep her at an arm's distance? Because I was sort of keeping it, I was friendly and cordial, I was always polite always polite, but I was not as warm or effusive as I could have been. And then I found out we knew someone in common, a Black woman, and I began to trust Beth enough to pause and ask myself this question, which is where we go. I'm like, what is my agenda? Why, why am I keeping this woman away from me? What am I hoping to accomplish with this? Has Beth done anything to show herself not to be trustworthy? And the answer was no. And so then I had to check myself. Why do I think that she's going to be harmful. Obviously, I have some adaptive reasons and that's because of prior experience, but I wanted to have a relationship with her. And so going back to your question about being an augmentor, I think it's important. Imagine if I was trying to be an augmentor to a young white woman, a student, but I had all this stuff going on in my head. I think it's critical. that So DIG is about surfacing those assumptions, asking yourself those questions and really understanding, huh, well, when did I start to feel that way? Well, first of all, how am I feeling? When did I start to feel that way? Why do I feel that way? What is this about? And it was about, I was processing Beth, not as an individual, but as a proxy for the collective of white women. And I didn't want to continue to do that. I, I, I do have to say, and this is an example that's gotten me into some trouble before because people think that it's like profiling, but I think it's important to bring this up. So sometimes people have a hard time thinking about this with race. And, and Julie, I don't know if I shared this example when we met earlier at Babson, but it's sort of like before there were the ride sharing apps and we had to take yellow cabs and sometimes there would be black market cabs. And my girlfriends and I, we were like, the part the dude looks like this. <laughs> this is the license plate. And if, do you remember any of this, Julie? If I don't get there by and this time. And it's in your time,
0: book too, yeah. The yeah, yeah, and your exactly. fingers.
2: <laughs> yeah, you dial in, and, and you know, in the United States, the number for emergency is 911. You hit nine one, and your finger hovers over the one or you have a pencil between your hand or something like that. But when we do these things with the cab drivers, does it mean that I hate all men? No, it just means that Statistically speaking, men are more likely to harm women than vice versa. And so I wanted to be safe. That's based on general statistics. With white women, I had personal experience. And so I had to learn to put that to the side. And I think when you're augmenting someone, it's important that you just not assume that augmenting is the same with between you and every single person. And none of us can escape the cage of some of these isms. None of us can. And I know people like to, to refute the existence of these cages and to act as though these things don't exist. But when, what I mean by cage is just things that limit us and constrain us. Things that may prevent us from being our fully authentic selves. And I think it Shared Sisterhood, the goal of that is to surface what those differences are and to talk honestly about the historical power dynamics that help to uh, build them.
0: Could you talk a little bit more about the DIG and the Bridge concepts? Because it it brought all these kind of concepts I've heard in various ways into total clarity. and I think it'd be great to share with our listeners.
2: Shared Sisterhood is based on three practices, DIG, Bridge, and Collective Action. And DIG is about surfacing your own assumptions about identities. It's introspective. It's you asking yourself questions. So you all, to present as white individuals, I'd say, when did you learn that you were white? When did you learn that there was such a thing as whiteness? And what I mean by that is, is that there is a value affixed to racial ethnicity and whiteness is often at the top. White Whiteness is at the top. When did you realize, huh, I might not want to be anything but white because there are definitely benefits and advantages. How old were you? And I, that's not a rhetorical question. I'm curious to know, well, maybe you haven't had that realization. I don't want to presume, but if you have, how old were you? I actually think I
1: might've been in such a privileged location uh, in my hometown that mm-hmm. uh, to me and my goals with basketball, I think I would have preferred at times to have been black and that it wasn't oh. clear to me that what whiteness brought me as success mm-hmm. or as, uh, what whiteness brought me to potentially lead to success or reduce certain barriers as being white on the basketball court is at least in my age group, is not necessarily a path to make you move faster in a school that is predominantly white. So, If you're a black basketball player, predominantly white school, you are elevated.
2: So when you would go play basketball in different neighborhoods, did you notice a difference between houses, between where you grew up and where they were? Like, did you notice any of those things or was it just everybody is sort of equal? In your mind. I was just really focused on the basketball court. Like, <laughs> You're like, this worth
1: that. I remember an example. We were playing at the Dorchester Y back in the day. It was one of the more fun games I've ever been a part of because fans were running on on the court. It was live. You know, They, they had somebody mic'd up, but uh, that didn't happen when you were playing in the suburbs. Right. Okay. Yeah. Good. Thank you. you so like... I would say it wasn't until I was in college.
2: Yeah. Until I realized College, college. That's that's actually similar to what Beth has said.
0: I grew up in downtown Chicago uh, in the 70s. And so it was very apparent to me very quickly that I lived in Lincoln Park, the nicest neighborhood in Chicago. I went to a private school. And in the 70s, there were just not it was not. You know, an affluent city the way it is now, and Chicago just kind of levels me in a different way of just like the discrepancy between North Side and South Side. It's just you know even still to this day. So yeah, it was clear to me very early on that I was white and I, I lived on the nice side of town and I had the privilege for sure.
2: Yeah, and I think what's fascinating, and we talk about this in the book, is that oftentimes people from historically power-dominant groups come to those realizations later in life. It's just the way that that is structured. It's sort of, I mean, it's just very interesting to think about that. But that's Dig. Dig is asking yourself those kinds of questions, writing those, your stories down, asking yourself how you felt in those different situations, Jimmy, I'd be very curious. We don't have to get into it on air, but I'd be very curious to know how did you feel as a as a young white boy growing up into an adolescent and a, and a young man on a court predominantly with black men, and then you might have heard about start hearing about Black Lives Matter or start hearing about Rodney King, or I'm just curious in terms of. If the basketball experience was a lens into deeper experience, deeper life experiences or not deeper, but different life experiences, you don't have to answer now. I'm just that would be a dig question that I would give to Jimmy if I was coaching Jimmy. That's something that I would ask him, because believe it or not, those differing interactions it does influence us. It affects us, even if subconsciously, it affects how we think about the world and therefore how we might augment or someone else or how we might try to work with someone. So that's DIG, which is about surfacing your own assumptions assumptions about identity and truly being introspective and asking yourself these questions in a non-defensive, non-judgmental way, because your answers are your answers. We need to start looking at ourselves much more soberly and honestly in mirrors. Jimmy? How uh like how you just called on me? That's amazing. You're such a teacher. <laughs> <That was
0: amazing. laughs> well, I saw, I saw you go Hold like on, this. Let me get my hand up. Hold on. <laughs> Jimmy can go first. Jimmy can go yeah. first.
1: You defined dig, but then you said how to surface your assumptions without judgment. How do you do that? Do you have it like for the listeners, is there a way to be able to wade through it? Because I know there's no way I can I'm gonna be able to dig once and actually Lay everything bare. Like it's gonna have to be multiple times. Like what is maybe like a quick tip on how to do that for yourself and be honest with yourself?
2: So this may sound like a cop out, but it's extend grace to yourself. Grace is unmerited favor. It means that was a really crappy thing to think or write down, but you know what? I'm getting better at this. I'm getting any of that nasty, private garbage stuff out so that I can analyze it. So that's part of the process. It's it's like cleaning out your freezer or your refrigerator or, or whatever. You have to address and look at the things that are rotten, the things that are not serving you anymore. Don't just act like it doesn't exist and then let the stink continue. You need to be honest. And so extending grace to yourself And also recognizing, I don't know a human being who's not prejudiced in some way, shape, or fashion. I just, I don't know of one. So this, I think, ideology that all of us are perfect and on point and equitable and fair and inclusive all the time, we are not, we're not equity superhumans. It's just not true. And I offer, I have a story, what well, we may not have time for me to, but I have a story about myself that I tell to people because people look at me as like some kind of shiro, and I'm like, I'll share the story. My son is two or three or however old he was. Uh, he wasn't quite in elementary school, but he had a fever. And if you know schools, he can't go to school with a fever, but it was a fever just above a fever. And he didn't feel bad. So homeboy was hopping and jumping all over the place. I was getting my PhD, trying to write my dissertation. And I'm sitting here saying, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, they're gonna kick me out because I'm not gonna get this work done. So my idea was to tire him out. (laughs) So I'm taking him to the park. It's the middle of the day. And I'm thinking he's gonna be able to tire himself out, get on the swings, everything. The park is packed. It is packed. And I'm shocked. Who are all these people? Why are all these people here? Then I noticed it's all women. They're all relatively short in stature and they all have long black hair. And I was like, are these people Mexican? Are they even supposed to be here? Now, do you hear how racist that is? I called my husband. I said, Fred, I am such a racist. I cannot believe these women have every right to be here, even if they're not from the United States, but they could all be from the United States. Why did I jump to this conclusion? But see, that's what DIG is about. DIG is about putting that ugly, fish, rotten fish on the table and analyzing it. But I didn't stop there. I then did h- research on the history of immigration. I tried to understand where, why did, I, where did that ideology or that association between relatively short in stature and long black hair and illegal immigration Come from or not having proper, where did that come from? Why do I think that way? I'm looking at the media, I start looking at oh, wait a minute, there's a whole history behind why particular kinds of people have been categorized. So that's where that came from. Now, how can I ferret that thing out? How can I take it out, hold it up and analyze it, and move on? What I did not do though was go up to one of those women and say, You don't belong here, you need to get out of my country. What I did not say is, Are you paying your taxes? (laughs) So Dig is critical that you pause when you find yourself having those thoughts because it is normal. I think we, we are swimming in this stuff to pause. You have to pause and rather than interrogate another person, interrogate yourself.
0: And do you think, Dr. Tina, in that time, like, is there a moment to kind of check yourself or, you know, to like to sometimes I find when I say things out loud, I was like, that sounds crazy. I can't believe mm-hmm. I just said that out loud. Like, do you think partnering up during this time or is it really just a self-reflective activity, would you say?
2: Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you answered that question. Well, let me get to bridge and then I'm going to come back because so, so bridge is about connecting with people who are different than you. So connecting if you're a white person, connecting with a black person or Hispanic or Latinx person or an asian person or middle eastern person and if you're a man connecting with someone who does not identify as a man what we often encourage obviously when you're bridging you're going to have communities where you're talking across difference with dig we actually oftentimes encourage people to dig within community so i have encouraged white women to dig with other white women Because you all can interrogate each other. You may be experiencing some of the same things. And what that does is it protects historically marginalized people. So it protects Black women. I have a Facebook group that has over 4,000 members on the Shared Sisterhood group and reinvigorating that. But when we first started it, a lot of the Black women, Asian women, Latinx, Hispanic women would message me and say, I don't feel safe here. Because what was happening White women were well intentioned, but as they were asking questions and digging, they were causing harm. Some of their questions were harmful and hurtful. They didn't mean it that way. Yeah. And so what we then what I then did was we allow people to self-select into racial ethnic dig groups. And I would encourage your readers to do that. And so it's like couple up with two or three or four other people who you identify at with and do some of this dig work and really challenge each other. And challenge yourself so you iterate back and forth between dig group private dig work you go back and forth and the goal is so that you can sort of expunge as much and, and actually develop and grow And then you can start to bridge and then, but you can do those things in parallel too. So there can still be some bridge attempts, but you may learn that you need to go back to dig because the bridge attempt may reveal, okay, I just deeply offended Julie or Jimmy or Tina or whoever, and I need to do some more
0: work and and really sit with how I'm feeling. Does that answer your question, Julie? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I really value that, and allowing ourselves the opportunity to do that, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah you do. It, uh, it's it's that gentleness, I think, that you've just described, or kind of the acceptance of the experience that we have and why we're why we feel this way. But having those conversations instead of, for me, I know sometimes ping ponging around my crazy brain is not always the best.
2: Extending grace to ourselves is so important, and going back to that playground story that I said, I shared some things that I did not do. I did not go up to the person and say this. I also didn't say, "Well, that's my right." I have a right to think that they don't belong here because I'm a taxpayer. I mean, I'm not even going to get into some of the narratives that I hear where it's basically aligned with that argument. Yeah, you might not want to hear that, but you're politically correct. All of us are thinking that. Why are they here? Wow. You need to check yourself. A lot of the people who I see with those kinds of narratives, are just they just need to do some dig. (laughs) That's where they need to do some dig. And it, the platform, I would love for the platform to be sort of recede so that they could do some personal reflection. And I don't hold myself above them, by the way, because, I mean, that, that story about the playground is true. And that was me.
1: So you, you mentioned your three pieces of the book about shared sisterhood. Dig, bridge, mm-hmm. collective action. Was there mm-hmm. a mentor or somebody in your life who showed you what that was or what one of those pieces like embodied that to you? Or was there somebody who helped you work through that during an inflection point of your life and just kept showing up as you kind of dug yourself to find your new place? Like, wh- was there someone who really helped you along?
2: Oh, I've had a ton of. Oh, mentors. my parents, first of all. Mm. I mean, my parents were really good at letting, teaching my sister and I. Your emotions are not a fact. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you're upset about something does not mean that it's upsettable. You know, I mean, it's upsettable, but doesn't mean that it is something that we're going to change course on. Or, you know, I thank God oh, there were boys that I had crushes on and I'm like, thank you, Jesus, that didn't work out because my emotion is not a fact. In the time, in the moment, I'm like this, if this doesn't happen, I'm gonna faint, I'm gonna die. That is so not true. They were very good at that, which is important and it's connected to shared sisterhood because I do think sometimes when we have these thoughts and or someone challenges us because we've said one of these thoughts out loud, we treat our emotions as fact. And my parents taught us from a young age, you better slow down with that because you need to think through. You need to slow down, think through this. So, in other words, recognizing that as human beings, my parents helped me to to be introspective, to sort of be honest with what I'm thinking and feeling, allow that, but then to have me examine it and not act upon it right away. Actually, I have a group of girlfriends. There's five of us. One of us, Eureka, we met when I was, I think, was I 17 or 18? We were on the phone today because we're both entrepreneurs going through the same sort of cycle and they have been augmentors to me. Those are people who have taught me through college and marriage and kids. They've seen me through my entire life. And so they can say things like, is this aligned with your values, Tina? Is this who you want to be? Because I'm just going to ask, say some things that you said to me over the years. And this sounds like it might be misaligned. I hope everybody has those kinds of people. I hope that you can be those that kind of person to other people. So, I mean, I have too many people to name, Jimmy, but absolutely. And 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 I think the reason when I, I started working on shared sisterhood in 2009 wow. and Yeah. And it was really, that was when I was about to graduate from my doctoral program at Stern at NYU. I was very introspective because it was a major career change. And I realized, okay, I've been a banker. I've been a consultant. Now I'm about to be a professor. Why don't I feel like we're supporting each other in the workplace? Why aren't Black and white women closer? And if feminism is real, why aren't we coming together? Why isn't feminism strong enough to heal these schisms? Those kinds of questions really motivated me to start to do that work. And I, I wanted to actually, what I realized is when I looked at the research on how some diversity initiatives are just are not as su- successful as we'd like them to be, I wanted to understand why. And I really felt as though one, at least one of the explanatory variables was that I think the leaders in some of the organizations who are crafting or executing promoting these initiatives may have never done dig work so how are you going to promote a diversity initiative to recruit more black people or hispanic or latinx people when you're having thoughts like i did in the park and you've but you've never interrogated them uninterrogated thoughts like that that to me is the crime the crime is not having the thought the crime is yeah the crime is not interrogating the thought and or acting upon the thought that's the issue. And I think because so many people are afraid of being labeled, for example, racist, they deny that they even have the thought. But if you deny that you have cancer, you can't cure it. Yeah. Simply put. I'm blunt, right? If you deny you have it, you can't cure it. Dig is about surfacing your assumptions and examining them, interrogating them. It's very introspective. Bridge is about connecting with people who are different than you, developing authentic connections that are based on trust, empathy, risk-taking, and vulnerability. And you center the value of equity. And collective action, the third practice, is where because we have done dig and bridge, we can now link arms and together work to redress systemic inequities. We are better able to see them. And when you empathize, so sometimes people may have a challenge understanding, well, why is it important that we have an an equitable workforce? Well, it benefits all of us. It benefits everyone. And your organization cannot be as good as it could be if it's homogenous. It's just not it's not possible. 100%. I would love for people to not come with just opinion, come with research which suggests that on a regular basis homogenous teams outperform heterogeneous teams. If you know how to manage diversity, you have a competitive advantage. It's just the research mm. shows that over and over and over again. 100%.
0: 100%. I run a 20 plus person consultancy and that is always the most beautiful moment is when we can all come together with a different point of view It is by far the best kind of work that we can possibly do. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. And if you can keep the conflict about the task and not make it personal. Yeah. You end up with task conflict can lead to better outcomes as well if you know how to manage it. yeah. So to me, this is about expertise. It's about Mm -hmm. a skill set. Shared sisterhood is about improving and honing those skills. And I think just like we wouldn't have a CEO who didn't understand finance or operations or marketing, I think we need to start demanding that our CEOs and leaders understand things like shared sisterhood and their own identities.
0: Yeah. And Dr. Tan, I love the idea of as you continue to expand this impact and have these conversations, and there's this adoption of this philosophy that there's almost a mentoring that happens among organizations that use your, that are using this process and this program within their organizations and are sharing it with others. So that's really exciting to see. And I love the idea of the Facebook group and the ways that people are able to connect with each other and share their stories of how yeah. it's working, because that really inspires... I think even when you share the story of how you felt uh, at that time and how you changed your perspective and the stories in the book with you and Beth, that's so impactful. So it's really exciting to see that.
2: And you mentioned one of the things that I'm thinking about now is how to provide confidential advisory services to executives, because many executives and leaders and employees are scared to death of putting their foot in their mouth. Yes. But they may not have these skills. Well, where do you go as a 30 something, a 40 something, a 50, 60 something, 20 person when you have no idea how to get better at these things? Or you you may have some inkling, but you have these thoughts, these private nasty thoughts like mine in the park that you want to bring out into the light, but you need some help interrogating them. Yeah. A place where they can go and not feel like idiots for asking certain questions
0: again going back to sort of this mentoring right it's the idea of people who have had that lived experience they had those feelings they had those thoughts they went through the experience of digging they went through the experience of bridging they've gone through the experience of collective action and they can share with others how it worked Mm -hmm. for them i think that's really powerful the first thing that comes
1: to mind when i say mentor what would you say back church what about if i said mentee children Children. Sponsor? Why do I? I can't.
2: I I thought American Express. <laughs> I don't know. That's the first yeah. thing that came to my head. If, if you are listening, if that. yeah,
1: please, American <laughs> Express executive. <laughs> and then, lastly, if I say coach, what do you think of Prime? It's it's Coach Prime, Deion Sanders from Jackson State, Ooh, going yeah, Colorado. But going to going to Buffalo? Is he gonna be just as, as successful? I mean, you, Colorado, Boulder.
2: But the, so I have been watching documentaries and lots of commercials. I love sports, and I am just finished watching FIFA. So that's why that association Same. immediately came. Yeah! Good. Oh my gosh! Did you so see Croatia? Good. Croatia just—I I felt bad for them, but
1: for Brazil, I love the coach prime comment. That makes me really happy. I think he's going to crush it and take it by storm. He's so good, and he doesn't have an agenda. I really feel like his only agenda is that the the young men and his team are going to succeed.
0: That is the purpose. That <laughs> is the purpose. You're phenomenal. You're phenomenal. Oh, thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. Wow, Jimmy, that was a phenomenal conversation. I feel like I've learned so much. I absolutely love this book. I know I keep saying that and I say that often, but it really was uh, just a really great blueprint and a really great guide. To your point is how do we keep communities together in the workplace?
1: These are difficult discussions, yet Dr. Tina is able to really bring levity and create a sense of, I think, hope for at least individuals, at least I felt this that individuals can create differences by having a change in action and a change in outlook. She's got so many great lines. I just heard her talking about, I've got some trod on these tires. I love that quote. <laughs> and, and how, you know, I took that to mean, you know, I hear trod, I hear like a little dirt sticking to my, my boot. And I thought it was such a great way to say, hey, look, I'm not perfect either. I, I have a thesis for how we can enact change and build communities but we all need help as a community it means there's no nobody's perfect but the community itself is is so much stronger than the individuals
0: i love that you really got a lot out of this book that's really cool i mean the book is shared sisterhood you are not the target audience but the fact that you got so much out of it is is really awesome and i also just loved like easy actionable not easy. Very like very challenging, but actionable ways um, to be able to make change. And here we are in the new year in 2023. What a great time to do it.
1: I think easy, approachable. I mean, I think your term easy, like they're approachable when Dr. Tina is talking about dig, bridge, collective action. That's an approachable process for some very tough topics. And though Shared Sisterhood wouldn't necessarily be a book that, you know, you'd think would end up in like a a holiday package for me. But I think that's kind of like that's the old way of thinking about allyship and how individuals should be building communities. You know, obviously, women helping women is not going to be suddenly turned around only by women. That doesn't make sense. And especially now, as you know, it's not necessarily a binary world. So it's 2023. We should be thinking about. Mentoring differently, we got to think the same way about shared sisterhood differently.
0: Amen. Amen. I love that. So, things to not miss buy the book. It's on Amazon, anywhere else you want to buy books if you don't like Amazon. And there's also a phenomenal Facebook group, a shared sisterhood that Dr. Tina and her partner have started as well. So, not only can you read the book, you can join the movement, you can share this podcast, uh, you can bring it into your workplace, uh, you can bring the book into your workplace and uh, move forward into a more connected, collective 2023.
1: We also got to give a shout out Babson College for just continuing to bring it. I mean, what a powerhouse, a mentoring department. What a group of intellectuals and educators. And remember, Julie, every time I get too excited or I go off the rails, you just got to be like, Jimmy, your emotions are not a fact. (laughs) Your emotions
0: are not a fact. (laughs) I'm going to send you a little plaque, just like the one that said, what would Oprah do? It's going to say that for you. It's your holiday gift. You're welcome.
1: I love it. It's like it's like the inverse of mood follows actions is your emotions are not a fact.
0: Your emotions are not a fact.
1: That was great. I'm looking forward to catching up with Dr. Tina again soon. Augmenters out. Augmenters
0: out. <laughs> we hope this episode was brief yet bright. And now it's time to read us out. And remember, we are here because real relationships have the power to transform organizations and build dynamic communities. Go ahead, Jimmy.
1: Absolutely. Augmenters supports mentoring that matters. Visit our website for the best interactive mentoring content at augmenters.us. Share our podcast with someone you care about, someone who needs a new mentoring relationship in their life pronto. We welcome questions and suggestions via email, hi at augmenters.us or via social media with our handle at augmentershq. Shout out to our producers, Erlin Cato. Thank you. Augmenters out.
0: See ya.